0: Hi, I'm Trip. I spent the first part of the 21st century as a film snob, rejecting any sort of mainstream comedy.
1: And I'm Ross. I am slowly, film by film, taking Trip through the films he sadly dismissed or smartly avoided until now.
0: And welcome to A Trip Through Comedy, a podcast examining studio comedies from around the turn of the century.
1: Trip, our exit today has us looking at two stars who have recently had career renaissances, Brendan Fraser and Matthew McConaughey. Both of them riding high in their careers, and in 1999, both of them starred in high-concept comedies, Fraser in Blast from the Past, and McConaughey in *Ed* TV. However, both of them fell flat financially and received mixed critical receptions. So, Tripp. Do you remember anything about these movies from 1999? Did you tune in to watch these films? Or do you have rather hidden a bunker than experiencing them on the big screen?
0: Uh, I was definitely in a bunker in 1999, (laughs) avoiding these. As we set up last week, Blast from the Past, I remember nothing of. This movie was not on my radar. Um, EdTV, I remember being excited about. Uh, Post Truman Show, I think we can both say we love The Truman Show. It was really marketed at the time as like a new Truman Show esque film and then just bombed and got eviscerated, if I remember when it came out. And so just completely avoided it uh, and went back to my art house films uh, back in 99. So uh, both these were very new, very fresh to me. I did not know what to expect. Yeah. You mean- the same way, Ross?
1: So, yeah, I mean, I definitely remember, I feel like, EdTV more. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I fully remembered Blast from the past as much. Thinking about why I would have remembered EdTV more, it is what you were saying. There's a a lot of very big-name people involved in EdTV, including Ron Howard, the director, who is having a lot of big success throughout the nineties.
0: And it became a punchline. I feel pretty quickly of like the flop of the year kind of, which is how I remember it.
1: It cost $80 million I think to make.
0: Yeah. We're going to have to talk about where that money went because I'm (laughs) not quite sure when we get to it. But um, I think let's, uh, let's start at the beginning though. And let's start with blast from the past here.
1: Yeah. So trip, what was the plot blast from the past
0: no medieval knights as i thought last week might come but uh still blast from the past centers around adam a 35 year old man who has spent his entire life in a bomb shelter after his parents calvin and helen played by the wonderful christopher walken and sissy spacek believed that a nuclear bomb has been dropped on america in the middle of the cuban missile crisis When Adam needs to go out into the real world in order to get food and medicine for his father, who has suffered a heart attack, he discovers 1990s America. As his tour guide, not only to L.A., but to 90s culture, is Eve, played by Alicia Silverstone. Adam, who I don't think I mentioned, is Brendan Fraser. Uh, hires Eve under the guise that he is from out of town to help get all the supplies he needs and help him find a wife within the next two weeks. But maybe that future wife is closer than he thinks. In the end, Eve realizes that she has fallen for Adam and that they belong together, specifically outside the bunker. So, Ross, I am going to skip explaining baseball to you since I think you, you fully understand the sport, uh, but I will ask you... What did you think about this movie?
1: I think this movie is a great example of why Brendan Fraser was a very big star in the 90s. Mm -hmm. I think Brendan Fraser is what makes this movie work because if you don't have a person in the lead who can play kind of this innocent and yet charismatic lead, it falls apart.
0: Yeah, he is giving 110% into this role throughout, and he buys everything the movie throws at him.
1: Absolutely. And and this is a big year for Brendan Fraser because he has also The Mummy, which is a big hit and Mm -hmm. creates action star Brendan Fraser. He also does Dudley Do-Right, which, just as a, a side note, is definitely what Ross would have seen in 1999.
0: But also playing off this Brendan Fraser kind of innocent, hunky comedian type that he was really good at. And we're also coming off of Gods and Monsters, right? 1998, the first Brendan Fraser as quote unquote real actor piece for him in which he's also really good.
1: Well, I think the key thing, and a bunch of people, I think in the reviews that I was kind of reading for this movie at the time, really compared it to Encino Man, Because Mm -hmm. it's a very similar Brendan Fraser performance. He is a man out of time, who now is suddenly put into 90s America, and he has to suddenly deal with that stuff. And so, having Brendan Fraser as the lead for your movie, and especially to have him in here, he is so winning and so fun Mm -hmm. that it really helps. Because on the other hand, I don't think his chemistry with Alicia Silverstone works. Oh. And I I don't think Alicia Silverstone fully works in this movie. Why not? I, I just don't know. It didn't seem to come off fully believable to me that this person would... I, I guess a lot of this movie, you have to buy the fact that... Everyone seems to be totally fine with numerous things he's, that Adam is doing that seem very bizarre. This person should be someone that you are calling, like, maybe somebody being like, something is wrong with this guy. I don't know what it is, but he is not from out of town or Alaska. <laughs> like, something is off.
0: But he has money, and he has valuable baseball cards and valuable stock and that's what drives drives them throughout. Um Ross, this is where I might surprise you. Uh we are 5 episodes in. This might be my favorite movie we have watched so far. I was hooked from the very beginning of this and just went along with it. It is such a charming, delightful just journey throughout the whole thing. I'm kind of a fish out of water Fan, like I like this genre, and you're exactly right. The Brendan Fraser just sells all of it, and the movie relies on him. But I was taken at every step of this movie, it is just so much fun. And the type of film that obviously they are not going to make anymore, that we talk about that all the time, but it felt even at the time like it was harkening back to an earlier type of Hollywood film that I loved every step of the way.
1: This is an audio medium, so art <laughs> listeners can't see this, but I have a big grin on my face, because while I yeah. may not like it as much as you, this warms my heart, because is. this is part of the reason that I wanted to do this entire thing, because there is something about this movie that is, even though I, I don't think I like it as much as you, I think there is something genuinely sweet that isn't as much done as much anymore, it's also a very fascinating film to look at with Alicia Silverstone. I mean, this is kind of towards the end of her really kind of running through that clueless
0: Leading lady Alicia Silverstone. Exactly. This is one of her last. I think she is phenomenal in this movie, and I believe that chemistry because I believed that she really liked this guy throughout. That there was this connection between them. All of the crazy stuff that he's making her go through.
1: I will say, and I and I think the other big thing for me that also really worked with this movie is you have two unbelievable performances from his parents, who are Christopher Mm -hmm. Walken and Sissy Spacek. Oh, yeah. Just absolute delight between the two of them. And it just keeps getting better and better as the movie keeps going on, from when you see them in the 60s as this couple, and even just the description you get before we even really fully meet them. That Christopher Walken is a brilliant guy, but he's definitely got a couple of screws loose and sissy spacex seems like a genuinely nice person and then 35 years in a bunker will absolutely drive (laughs) anybody to like drink whatever alcohol they can suddenly find and make
0: this is the transition christopher walken role here into he's gonna do catch me if you can three years later he's gonna do hairspray after this this is the beginning of bumbling dad christopher walken um that i love so much i think he's so good in both of those movies that i was delighted by him and by sissy spacek too who does not cope very well with her time in the bunker it slowly turns her into some sort of alcoholic bitter woman um but She, like everything else in the movie, sells it with such a heart and such warmth that you can't help but love all of these people throughout this movie. It's such a little hidden gem, Ross. Like, Why aren't we talking about this movie the way that we're talking about some of these other movies that have come up that are fine?
1: That is actually a really great question, and especially with Brendan Fraser having his big moment, obviously, in the last year, winning an Oscar for The Whale. But the interesting thing to me is that Brendan Fraser has now gone more serious actor. He's working with Scorsese. He's going to be in Killer to the Flower Moon. He was in No Sudden Move. He's done a lot more of the serious as a comedic talent. This is an absolutely perfect showcase for why he is such a winning screen performer.
0: And I have to give a lot of credit here to to Bill Kelly, who's the screenwriter. I think this is a really strong screenplay. He has written two other movies, one of which is Enchanted, which feels so much akin to this movie, right? Person from alternate reality steps into modern city. The jokes are very much the same. And I was so happy that you get... This early 1960s protected guy thrown into, and his father too. Christopher Walken is the first one to come up to the surface, out of the bunker into into modern America. And every time the movie starts to to walk a weird line here of how they're interpreting America, the joke is always turned onto them that they are misunderstanding versus some sort of, look how horrible the world is today. Shouldn't we go back to the 1960s?
1: Yeah, I mean, and so it's Bill Kelly and Hugh Wilson who actually also directed the movie that co-wrote this. Hugh Wilson, by the way, the other movie he directs in 1999... Dudley Do-Right with Brendan Fraser. So clearly he was just chilling with Brendan Fraser for, for like 1998, 1999. He, they do craft a very fun screenplay that does exactly what I think you say. The joke is on more of these people who are out of time. And also this idea that they have are with this entire conception that... There has been a nuclear holocaust. Mm -hmm. Everyone on the Earth is a mutant or like some sort of bizarro thing. Yes. And that is the only reality that they could possibly think of until they slowly have to tell. The, The scene at the end of Brendan Fraser sitting, Christopher walking down... And telling him that the Cold War has ended, and that it ended just very kind of like peacefully, and there wasn't like this massive... It's this very interesting and kind of sweet moment, because you could see a man in Christopher Walken trying to come to grips with everything that was so much of what he believed and knew suddenly changing. And still not
0: buying it. Like, he still doesn't completely buy it, which makes it you know, that much funnier. But again, living in a time where people believing conspiracy theories is a little uncomfortable, I kept waiting for the film to turn me off on those ideas, and it doesn't because it embraces them. And it kind of laughs at these people, how they are misinterpreting the world around them versus shutting down what is in the world around them.
1: Very, very true. And so, Tripp, who is your best supporting turn in this movie?
0: Christopher Walken and Sissy Spacek are wonderful, but I have to highlight a character actor who I really love, who I was excited to see pop up in this, and that is Joey Slotnick. Joey Slotnick works at the bar that they build on top of where uh, the house used to be. And so he starts out as this malt shop boy working in the shop. Uh, Slowly, the bar turns into a hippie bar and then a biker bar and then a grunge bar. And you slowly see him never leaving behind the bar, slowly go through all of these phases uh, and then ends up becoming a cult leader. Worshipping Brendan Fraser and family because the elevator from the bunker comes up through the ground. He thinks they have come from another planet. Again, like everyone else, he takes this ridiculous premise and just. Goes all in and is so funny in each of the different incarnations. I was always excited to see what is he going to do next when he comes up on screen. So always someone I love seeing. I've gotten to see him here in Chicago a couple times on stage. He's a, a Chicago actor originally. Um, what about you, Ross? Who are you want to highlight in this movie?
1: So I, I was going to say Sissy Spacek because I do think she is so good and brings a lot of heart to this movie. But I I do kind of agree with you. I think Sissy Spacek, now thinking about it, and Christopher Walken, they're they're their own universe. So I will highlight somebody who I find is always enjoyable in every movie they're in or anytime I see them, and that's Nathan Fillion. Nathan Fillion Mm -hmm. is just a ball of charisma that every time he pops up in anything just makes me so happy. And he has, I want to say, about two scenes in this movie. And they are a delight every time he pops up and his interaction with Brendan Fraser. I kind of wanted, actually, now a Brendan Fraser, Nathan Fillion, like, buddy movie. Like, I was like, they actually, I feel like, would do, like, a great thing together. He he plays the ex-boyfriend, recently ex-boyfriend, of Alicia Silverstone, who kind of is trying to win her back, not really trying to win her back, but I think just doesn't like the idea that there's now suddenly this new good-looking guy that's just moved in.
0: Yeah, and Nathan Fillion gets my vote for the funniest moment in the movie, of which there are many, but the biggest laugh aloud is he and Brendan Fraser end up getting into a physical fight, and every time Nathan Fillion starts to, you know, scuffle with... Brendan Fraser just right hooks him. Uh, It's been set up that he and his dad have practiced boxing every day for 35 years. And the moment that Brendan Fraser sees him just start to move, bam, he is down. And it is so funny, especially because the two of them are such similar physical presences, um, the way that that scene works. It's my call out for, for funniest moment. It was the biggest, I don't know if this movie has a lot of huge laugh out loud, moments it was more a chuckle and smile through the whole thing movie but man every time brendan fraser landed a punch
1: oh it, that's that is a really great scene and also includes in general that whole club sequence includes a very good dance sequence oh which, yeah which doesn't fit in into the funniest moment thing but just a really well done fun moment uh in this movie my funniest it, it sprinkled that a little bit it is Christopher Walken attempting to explain baseball to Brendan Fraser. (laughs) And Brendan Fraser taking everything so literally, and then having an argument, which does a time jump, it helps with a Mm -hmm. time jump, is Christopher Walken trying to explain why a runner goes from second to third, because he has to. And then coming back for a punchline when he goes to an actual baseball game, and it like dawns on him. As a person who has tried to explain baseball rules to other people, there is a lot of baseball that makes no sense until you see it. (laughs)
0: and with no visual aid too like if you can't picture any of it yeah very very funny running gag there
1: oh absolutely um what did you find as your unfunniest moment if you had any
0: i i struggled with this one and i don't think there's anything i would really shout out as as unfunny in i was rubbed a little The wrong way with Dave Foley throughout this movie. He plays Alicia Silverstone's gay best friend, uh, which also has a funny because Brendan Frazier, of course, just thinks that means that he's always happy. I think Dave Foley is fine. He's usually an actor I like. He plays the role very oddly. I don't know why it rubbed me the wrong way, but there was something about that character.
1: Yeah, I just don't think they have much for him to do. What I will say is it could have gone in a much more stereotypical fashion, and they, they tend to pull back from that.
0: They pull back from the stereotype, but instead it's, I'm going to play the gay best friend as just kind of weird and distant. And I understand this was 25 years ago. Like, just let Dave Foley be Dave Foley. Why do we kind of have to put this exterior on the gay best friend that he has a weird haircut and is very distant? Yeah. W- what about you, Ross?
1: So I actually kind of agree with you. I think it was hard for me to figure out like a quote-unquote unfunny moment. I didn't really find something there while you liked all the cult stuff I don't know it just didn't hit for me I think it just kind of like it was just so odd and it got weirder I will say I love his stuff showing him through the decades where it's like his mom buys the ice cream shop and it's like I he's got such hope and and promise he's like oh this is great I'm I'm doing this and then like over the course of time he just becomes more disillusioned and never left and he's just kind of like I don't know what I'm doing I mean by the
0: end he has long hair and and a huge shaggy beard, and a sun tattoo on his forehead. Yeah. I like that bit because I think you need that there to have something, I don't want to say threatening, but something so bizarre that every time they come up to the surface, you really do think you're in this post-apocalyptic world. Because the bar is falling apart, and people are chanting, and he looks so dystopian in his look that i liked the cult thing because it emphasizes this idea of oh we really have reached the apocalypse. And then when you step outside and you go a block away, it's sunny and wonderful and 90s LA.
1: Well, it's also the most back to the future moment, right? It's the Marty McFly coming in the, you know, outfit, the nuclear radiation outfit talking to his father that as Darth Vader. You know, it that actually to me is the most kind of like mm-hmm. back to the future-esque parallel is Christopher Walken coming up in that, you know, deradiation suit into suddenly this world. Uh, That was like a very kind of interesting thing. But I do kind of agree with you. There's not... We've had a couple other ones where it's like, oh, this joke really ages poorly, or this really doesn't work. I don't think there's anything in this movie that really is like that. So I do agree. So uh, we've heard, obviously, what we think about this. So it's now time to look at kind of what critics and audiences think of this. So once again, for those of you playing the home game, we are going to look at the Rotten Tomatoes score and the Letterboxd score. What do you think the Rotten Tomatoes score of critics are for Blast from the Past?
0: Um, I'm going to assume that they were all wrong and did not understand this movie at all. Um, And I'm going to assume that this is rotten in their eyes with like a 50%.
1: You are close. It is rotten. It is at 58%.
0: Okay, So so barely rotten barely right 60 percent that cutoff. so yeah
1: exactly i mean we we have a couple reviews it's uh you know keith phipps of the a- writing for the av club wrote the first 20 minutes of blast from the past in which the film actually does something with its central concept aren't that bad but once fraser reaches the surface and begins romancing the pouty charmless silverstone all that falls by the wayside uh but roger ebert closer with you he gave it a three-star review he said it's a sophisticated and observant film that wears its social commentary lightly but never forgets it you have ebert on your side and in terms of the letterboxd users how do you think the good people of letterboxd view blast from the past
0: well this is after this podcast, I know it's going to soar as people start to reappreciate this movie, but I'm going to guess it is uh, somewhere around a 3.0 for this movie.
1: So close. It's actually a little bit better for you. It's a okay. 3.2.
0: 3.2. There we go.
1: Not bad. Not not bad for for studio comedies, you know. We are going to do a new segment for this episode that was suggested by one of our good friends, Devin. You know, we talk a lot about What Trip Remembers from 1999, but I think it's also an interesting thing of when this movie came out, what would you have seen? This movie came out the weekend of February 12th, 1999. It was President's Day weekend. New releases that week. Message in a Bottle, My Favorite Martian, Tango, Unconditional Love, and Wind Horse. It's President's Day weekend in 1999. What, if anything, are you going to the, the theater to see? Are you seeing any of these movies?
0: Uh, no, I've never seen any of those movies. Um, I don't even know what Wind Horse is, but it sounds fascinating. Um, but I was, I was definitely at the movies this weekend, three-day weekend uh, in high school, and I'm sure that I was catching up on my Oscar movies. So there's a good chance I might have seen Gods and Monsters uh, this weekend or Shakespeare in love or some of those, uh, Hillary and Jackie, probably another one that I would have been checking out around this time. Great. Emily Watson performance there.
1: Once again, to prove my age, I absolutely saw my favorite Martian in a theater, (laughs) you know, I don't uh, even know
0: who's in that. So that would uh, be
1: Jeff Daniels and Christopher Lloyd and, uh, to, to transition a little bit, Elizabeth Hurley, I believe, also pops up in that movie.
0: There we go. The Ray Walston TV show, I'm sure, was much better from the... I,
1: I don't doubt that. <laughs>
0: from the 50s and 60s, yes. But uh, awesome. Uh, should we shift to our second movie, though, here and uh, think about some Ed TV? Uh, yeah. What is What is this movie about, Ross?
1: Absolutely. So in this remake of the Canadian film Louis 19, King of the Airwaves... Ed TV centers on Ed, a normal 31-year-old video store clerk in San Francisco, who is approached by network True TV, just to be clear, not the True TV that currently is on the air, it is a completely different True TV, fictional, to star in their new 24-hour live reality show. Ed agrees based on his family's urging and soon discovers that while fame comes with a lot of perks, it is a lot more complicated than he ever could have anticipated. This becomes especially true when a cavalcade of personal issues begin to happen All at once, including him starting a relationship with Ray's girlfriend Sherry, his long lost father shows up back in his life, and his brother is now refusing to speak with him. Ed's battle to gain his privacy and life back comes up against the large success of the show and the network's refusal to cancel the program. Finally, Ed is able to escape his fame bubble by threatening to reveal a salacious secret about one of the True TV executives live on air. The show is canceled. And Ed is finally free to live a normal life and a normal relationship with Sherry. So Tripp, did this film score big ratings with you, or were you ready to axe it from the air?
0: Ross, going with that metaphor, this movie should not have even gotten its pilot signed. Like, this is a disaster of a movie. That this is just... There is nothing I found, really, to recommend about this movie. This is an ensemble. You haven't mentioned Rob Reiner or Ellen DeGeneres or Dennis Hopper or Martin Landau or Sally Kirkland. This is Ron Howard and Babalu, Mandel... And Lowell Gans, who have worked together on some really great movies before, and it misses at every turn.
1: So I like it more than you. I I think I have the exact same feelings that I did in terms of Blast from the Past in this regard. I think McConaughey is very charming, and I actually think that him and Jenna Elfman are very fun, or I found them very fun. I think this movie is trying to grapple with a lot of very interesting things, especially in the late 90s, where you have the Clinton sex scandals, the OJ trial has ended, and all these random people have now suddenly become famous, and this idea of, like, bizarrely getting interested in people's lives, there is something that they're trying to grapple with. I will not say that it's very successful, necessarily, but I do think that it is a movie that is trying to come up or deal with what being famous and that fame does to people who in some cases never ask for it
0: but he does seem to ask for it like it starts with the central central premise of we are going to take a regular person and follow them around with cameras and they have ed choose to do that but then never explain why he has chosen to do this. He doesn't seem to want to do it, but he just agrees for script's sake. They don't seem to have really thought through what this would look like in real life, how this would work. And so, granted, we are watching this after so many of these ideas have come to fruition, but... These camera trucks following him around and people running, and there don't seem to be any sort of contingency plans thought through. It really it feels like everyone was sleeping their way through coming up with an idea of what might this look like, but in no way have thought deeper than
1: that. So I think where so you're correct on Ed, but I think what I found interesting in some respects is Jenna Elfman's, kind of the whole element with her of Mm -hmm. it turns into this referendum on who she is and not in the way that you would think like people are judging her oh wow she ends up kind of breaking up with her boyfriend (laughs) live on television after it's discovered that he's cheating on her which is woody harrelson who we haven't Mm -hmm. even mentioned yet they have such a great chemistry i think but there is this whole element of you know jenna alfman being suddenly judged Mm-hmm. And she did not choose to be on this television show. She is not the person that signed up to be on here. But how media and people react to her as if she's not a person. It's a thing that they can just vote. It's like a character. And so it's like, oh, I don't like this person, that she's not hot, she's not, you know, the right for him. There's that whole USA Today poll that suddenly is there. I would say that the thing that seems the most unrealistic to me is how quickly everything happens in this movie of a timeline. Yeah. Somehow in 60 days... <laughs> All of this stuff happens, including, by the way, Woody Harrelson writing a book. Like, oh, getting my published. brother
0: peed on me.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: it, yes. But here's my question, Ross. I think the movie wants to deal with this issue, and you are exactly right, of the way that America and the media are treating the Jenna Elfman character is the most interesting thing in the movie. The movie never seems to want to take her side or never gets past the male gaze. This is a pretty, I'm sorry to say, misogynistic movie. That this is a movie, even though it might condemn the quote-unquote cameramen in the movie for lingering on the naked one-night stand that Woody Harrelson has, or for lingering too much on Jenna Elfman or Elizabeth Hurley when she wanders in. The movie exploits them all just as much and the movie lets all of these characters off the hook so easily and suddenly woody harrelson and matt mcconaughey are gonna hug it out and they're all okay that it feels like such a bro take on all of this i wanted the movie to grapple with these ideas but it it doesn't seem to care about that
1: yes i definitely think there is a shallow kind of thing of matthew mcconaughey kind of understanding that there seems to be a lot of stress on jenna elfman's character and that there's all these stories or things and he tries to kind of de- defend her on the show but i don't think he fully grapples with the idea that she is being thrust into this sudden celebrity in in ways that he does not have it is all – he is the protagonist of this show, and everyone seems to quote-unquote love him, that they then think that they need to then control somehow everything of his life, and that they have a right to now say, oh, you should be dating this person, you should be dating that person. This is what's going to – you should do this, you shouldn't do that, and he's being manipulated. We see several times where Ellen DeGeneres starts kind of poking and prodding, and but they don't even really grapple with her complicity. No, and then
0: suddenly she just makes a 180 for no reason whatsoever, that they don't set any of that up for reasons I don't understand. Like, these are really smart. Hollywood writers and director behind this movie. And it just all feels so half assed and like someone had an idea, someone had a high concept. And instead of thinking about what does that concept mean and think about all the different iterations of it, like I think Blast from the Past does in a smart way, this just we're just going to throw it all at the screen and see what happens and not really care that we are filling this movie with horrible people. And we're just going to show them and move on.
1: Yeah. I mean, to put this movie also in context, not just obviously coming out very soon after Truman Show and getting a lot of comparisons with it, but you have McConaughey kind of in the first part of his big career before the rom-com era, Matthew McConaughey. Mm -hmm. He's working with big-name directors. I mean, he just worked with Spielberg recently for Amistad. You have him and Zemeckis the same year with Contact. He's worked with Joel Schumacher in Time to Kill. He's doing John Sayles movies with Lone Star. And he is just coming off of making another his second Richard Linklater movie with the Newton Boys. So, you know, and obviously he breaks out in Dazed and Confused. So this is kind of an interesting moment in McConaughey's career, because he is kind of, again, you could put Ron Howard in this. Ron Howard is a big name director that he decided to work with, who himself, coming off of Ransom, he has just made also Apollo 13, which was a big movie, and somehow Mm -hmm. he didn't get nominated for Best Director, which I will never understand. You know, you could see why... Someone like Matthew McConaughey looks at this and goes, "Okay, great. I've got a, a, a good director. I've got a script. I, you know, by people who have made worked with Ron Howard before, doing great movies like Night Shift and Parenthood and Splash." I can see where the thought process goes in here.
0: This movie, I do not understand how the man who made Apollo 13 made this movie because it is so visually bland throughout. And I don't want to keep comparing this to The Truman Show because that's not fair to a movie. But you think about all of the creative ways that that movie sets up of how reality television is going to look and where we're going to be putting the cameras and how we shape all of this. And then this movie just feels thrown together. Like, there is no thought around that whatsoever.
1: Even with all this, trip, who do you find has the best supporting turn in this movie?
0: The only time I really laughed through this movie was any time Martin Landau shows up. He plays Matthew McConaughey's uh, stepfather. He is in, like, an electric scooter, and he throws out one-liner after one-liner after one-liner, and it's the time in the movie where it feels like a Babalu, Mandel, and Lowell Gans script. They are so funny. He also, because he's Martin Landau, brings a lot of heart to the movie. He and Matthew McConaughey have a scene near the end that is really wonderful. And so those were the only times the movie came alive to me.
1: I I was actually going to highlight that scene at the end too. I think it's the scene that encapsulates, I think, everything of what they really wanted to do. At at a certain point, Dennis Hopper, who plays his biological father, has passed away. And Ed is not allowed to go to the funeral because everyone else in the family does not want the cameras there. They have reached a point where they can't deal with him. And Martin Landau comes to him at the gates. And they have this conversation and Matthew McConaughey telling him, «You are my father. You are the person that I view as my real father». And they have this immensely touching moment. And then Martin Landau looks up and realizes that the cameras are there. And it's just this frustration. And it's because he knows that this isn't played for the cameras, but it's Mm -hmm. this intrusion. It's an intrusion on their lives and that it can't be there. And it's all done non-verbally because Martin Landau is a fantastic actor. (laughs) Like It just works so well. And I agree. He's got the one-liners, but I think that scene sealed Mm -hmm. it for me. In terms because of being that's like, the
0: movie reckoning with what it is doing in a way that it doesn't throughout the rest of the movie. And it is just so aggravating. Um, do you have a funny moment you want to call out here?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought of a couple things. But the scene that kind of, I did get a good chuckle out of because it's so much of a dude quote-unquote, you know, moment that is just kind of comical, because of course some guy would think like, this is what he needs to do. There is a moment in this movie, obviously, when Woody Harrelson has discovered that he's cheating on Jenna Elfman. Jenna Elfman says on live TV to everyone watching that Woody Harrelson is a bad leg. Woody Harrelson walks up looking as if he's about to like assassinate him, like with like a hat on and sunglasses. Like he looks like he's somehow like an assassin, but he is there to only do one thing, which is bring out an ex-girlfriend so that he can clarify that he is not a bad lay. He's just not the worst. (laughs) He's not the worst that she ever had. (laughs) And so it is such and that's it. He doesn't have he doesn't want to correct, he doesn't want to do anything else other than just make sure that people understand that he's not that bad.
0: It does feel like a precursor to like The Jersey Shore and something that the situation would have done on, on reality TV there. But
1: it goes with that character. The way that Ray, the Woody Harrelson character is played is he is obnoxious. This guy thinks he's the life of the party, and people yes, kind of are like. The movie
0: wants us to like him. That's the thing that annoyed me about it. And I'm sorry, I really hated that scene. Like I hate so much of what Woody Harrelson is doing in in this movie, and the way that that character is structured throughout this movie.
1: The problem to me with Ray is that the movie wants us to feel sorry for him, that he somehow is wronged. And the answer is he's not wronged. He makes a lot of choices himself, yep. and he his decisions come and bite him immediately. And so, I guess the question becomes: Is the first part of the movie I don't think it had the sympathy for him, and then after that kind of scene that I'm ta- that I picked as my moment, it then wants us to feel like. Well, isn't it sad? Like, isn't hasn't he been wronged in some way? And you're like, no. But <laughs> like, it does hasn't.
0: want us to have sympathy for him because it sets up the movie with him dating Jenna Elfman, who we're supposed to love right away. And he's the one who's into this idea. We have this sympathy because he has this great idea and that if Ed can get on TV, he can make this dream happen for him to open a gym. And the movie does want us to like him and thinks that he is a good guy.
1: So... I think the movie would actually view him as selfish. I I took all of that stuff, and maybe that's me editorializing it, because that's how I felt about him. I find him selfish. I think it's all about him, right? He says he's thinking about Matthew McConaughey, but why does he want him to do it? Because he is going to open a gym, and he is going to borrow the money that off of what McConaughey is doing, and he is the one that suddenly—he's the one who's auditioning. He's the one who wants to do all this stuff. And when he suddenly, it comes back and blows up in his face, as it should, to me, where the movie then lost me with his character is that it's like, well, don't you feel bad for him? And I'm like, not really, actually, this guy seems like a complete, you know, jerk. But I think what you're saying is a, a valid a valid point in terms of the, the empathy that it misplaces on him.
0: If you found that moment funny, yeah. what possibly did you find unfunny <laughs> in this movie? What are you going to go for there? <laughs>
1: Well, so again, there wasn't something, I had a tough time trying to figure out something that was like painfully unfunny to me. I think the the whole night of sex scene with Elizabeth Hurley,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to lead into what I find unfunny, what I liked is in some respects the way that it feels a bit horrifying as he's going to the event, where you have this whole crowd of people outside. He's in this car. He's kind of looking around going like, okay, this is this is definitely so very bizarre. To
0: set this up, he's going to Elizabeth Hurley's apartment. They are going to have sex for the first time. When he gets there, there is a crowd outside with signs because people are so invested that he is going to have sex with Elizabeth Hurley playing sex goddess supermodel character right he then gets in there the cameras are there you keep wondering when are they going to cut away from this moment on live tv and they don't seem to want to
1: it goes with the idea that she is also very clearly been working with the executives that she mm-hmm. has been like cast she is there really because she knows the cameras are there. She is fully playing to the cameras, right? She's looking uh-huh. at the cameras. It feels very uncomfortable. And I do. And then it
0: the- ends with a joke of animal injury. Like yeah. the entire scene ends with he gets out of it because he falls on and crushes her cat.
1: Yes. It's. it's- it didn't work i think once it gets in there but i do the only part of it that i think is interesting is right before that the setup it feels like a horror movie the inherent pressures that are in your own head in a moment like that have now been externalized and become real it's like there is literally now a crowd of people who are all here that are all like all right so like let's go and you're like all right okay there's like a lot going
0: on here millions of people watching it exactly
1: Um, Tripp, did you find – I I realize we never even asked uh, – did you find any moment to be funny to talk about in this movie? Oh,
0: you're right. I just wanted to jump to That was the <laughs> unfunniest moment also. Um, not really. Um, every now and then you get these little jokes – with the cameras intruding on them. And you talked about that moment with Martin Landau. That's really sweet. There is the first time that Matthew McConaughey and Jenna Elfman kiss. And it's this really lovely moment and they are kissing. And then out of the side of the frame, the camera just slowly moves in and you see it emerge almost like, you know, some sort of monster. Mm-hmm. And Jenna Elfman, who's really wonderful in this movie, I should add, just gives it this side eye look like... Like, oh, that's right, it is there. Like, the camera is always watching. And it's what I wish the movie would have done more of and explored those ideas more. Um, but that was really a chuckle that I got out of this
1: movie. You get also the man in the van is Glenn Howard as required for all Ron Howard movies, who has, like, bizarre, like, interstitials during, like, his life seems to be having his own problems.
0: With dog walker issues, (laughs) and then they keep, like, zooming in on his bad toupee, I think, for reasons that aren't really clear.
1: I believe there's hair plugs. He gets very upset that the hair plugs... Uh, I yeah. believe he was given doll hair or something, and then he finds his girlfriend dancing with another person at the club and one of these like... things.
0: It's yet another stupid, unnecessary plot line running through.
1: So Tripp, obviously our listeners have now heard what we think of this movie, but let's talk about the critics and the good people of Letterboxd. Uh, what do you think was the Rotten Tomato score for Ed TV?
0: I remember this movie being eviscerated. So I'm going to go that this is like a 35% on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: Now, you are going to be shocked by this. And I'm actually pulling it up right now just to make sure that this didn't suddenly change. But the critics' score on Rotten Tomatoes for EdTV is 63%.
0: What is, is wrong fresh. with people?
1: It is It is fresh. Oh uh, here's a co- Roger Ebert gave it two and a half stars. He said, the kind of guy who would agree to having his whole life televised, however, is essentially just a long-form Jerry Springer guest. Anyone who would agree to such a deal is a loser, painfully needy, or nuts. And since the hero of Ron Howard's Ed TV isn't really any of those things, the film never quite feels convincing.
0: Exactly. You don't know why he is doing this at any moment
1: And then we have Dave Anson from Newsweek. Albert Brooks' real life sent up the absurdity of turning private reality into mass spectacle nearly 20 years ago. Ron Howard's version is, no surprise, a funny, audience-friendly entertainment that's ultimately less scathing satire than conventional Hollywood romantic comedy outfitted in trendy new clothes. So, yeah oddly enough, uh, you know, fresh. Cause I, I thought the same thing as you before I looked it up. I was like, Oh, this is going to be not great. 63 is higher than I thought. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, what do you think the good people, good users of Letterboxd think of this movie?
0: Now I have no idea because everything I thought I knew about this movie is just up in the air, Ross. So I'm going to say <laughs> this is a 2.8.
1: You are so close. It is 2.9. Okay. It's so. a, it's a 2.9 on, on Letterboxed. Again, this was a movie that did not do do well. It made worldwide a little over $35 million. So, you know, again- On this
0: inexplicable $80 million budget that I don't know where yeah. it went. Like, the movie looks cheap.
1: It's pretty crazy that it, it cost that much amount of money.
0: Ross, what was I doing instead of watching this movie this weekend?
1: That's a great question. So this came out the weekend of March 26th. The new releases that week were Doug's first movie. Yeah, no. The remake of The Mod Squad.
0: Yeah, not seeing that either.
1: uh, And A Walk on the Moon. I don't even know. Yeah.
0: Nope, doesn't doesn't ring a bell.
1: Now, to tie our entire things together, the top two movies that weekend at the box office, Forces of Nature and analyze this so Trip, what were you doing
0: my guess what is this March 26th we're on spring break Um, I am in some friend's basement playing GoldenEye on the N64 Uh, (laughs) I'm not probably seeing any of these movies were you at Doug's first movie is that where you were Ross
1: so I was trying to think this i don't know if i actually saw it i i don't think i was i i actually have no idea what i would have been seeing at a movie theater at that time because it it really would have been not as much uh you know any of those things but i was way too young for the mod squad which goes again with this idea of you know we've talked about dudley do right on this episode there was a whole big thing in the 90s of like trying to remake like old television shows like suddenly that, into movies. That sounds
0: familiar into, uh, into yeah. what's going on today, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um,
0: Ross, if I'm going to sit down, watch one of these high-concept comedies, is there something I can pair with it? Either a palate cleanser after I sit through EdTV, or just another joyous romp that can only lift my spirits, like Blast from the Past?
1: Well, for you, Trip, I would say you should just take out EdTV. And replace it with a movie that we actually mentioned earlier, which is real life. Albert Brooks Mm -hmm. is amazing. And real life, which stars, I think, still not appreciated it enough, Charles Grodin, as this family that are being followed as part of a reality show. You want to talk about camera jokes. Just, if you're listening to this, take a break and look up the picture of the cameras that they use for real life. In this world, they have people in these like astronaut-esque like, helmet things that are the cameras and have them walking around just constantly following them.
0: It's, it's a brilliant visual gag. It's
1: it's so good. And, it, and the crazy thing is this is about 20 years earlier and is so much funnier and sharper about how mm-hmm. reality TV, which in the late 70s was starting to happen with PBS, with following families.
0: Which gets name dropped at the beginning of of ed tv and also so much deeper into thinking about the consequences of what they are doing absolutely EdTV tv doesn't seem to care about
1: absolutely and again charles groden see anything charles groden watch beethoven i don't care just watch charles groden movies he's he was fantastic and he's great in that movie what about you what is something that you would pair either when you rewatch blast from the past or to try to wipe your brain from ed tv
0: uh, so we haven't really talked about this idea of high concept comedies here, right? And this idea that you're going to create a comedy with this huge idea behind it and that your jokes are going to come from that concept. And I was a couple times doing blasts from the Past and just thinking about this genre, reminded of a German movie called Goodbye Lenin. Uh, it came out in 2003, Directed by Wolfgang Becker and stars a very young Daniel Bruhl. Takes place right around the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, they live in. West Germany, his mother falls into a coma just before the Berlin Wall falls, then wakes up from her coma, and in order to protect her, they have to pretend like everything is back in the old West Germany, because any shock is going to kill her, maybe, or send her back into a coma. And of course, all these hijinks appear, so they have to explain why there's now a Coca-Cola billboard outside their window. They have to move all the furniture back in. They have to create fake news broadcasts for her to listen to uh it is all very funny but also very heartwarming at the same time and i think takes this idea of kind of one joke idea and just finding everything you can to mine all of the ideas out of it and all of the laughs out of it that i would highly recommend checking out goodbye lennon
1: that is a movie that I've been aware of and I just haven't seen, so I'm I'm definitely going to have to try to check that out. Uh, sounds very exciting, and I do love Daniel Brühl. Very good actor. So, Tripp, we've talked a lot about this. What are your final Letterboxd ratings for these movies?
0: Uh, blast from the Past. I think I'm going to go with a four, a four star movie here. I might even lean four and a half on this, Ross. I think I'll stick with, I'll stick with four stars here uh, on that same tier as, you know, 10 things I hate about you and office space and some of the really, really wonderful films we discovered so far. Uh, EdTV is a one and a half star movie. Uh, there was nothing in that movie that I would recommend to anybody out there. What about you, Ross?
1: So I guess I'm consistent with my two ratings. Uh, I went three stars for both. I think uh, Blast from the Past, it's more, I think, Brendan Fraser, and there's a lot. And you may be able to get me to three and a half, honestly, on that. I, I think it's mm-hmm. it, it could be closer to that. But there was just some things that held me back ed tv gets to the three due to the charming nature of matthew mcconaughey and, and jenna elfman and i think some of the ideas that they're trying to grapple with but it's probably a two and a half to three kind of idea like i i do agree with you it's also we didn't mention this it's over two hours and it's yeah. way too long it, it is way too long it needed to shorten up at times i was like how much of this movie do i have left and then was
0: You got me to do this podcast reminding me that these are all going to be short watches, right? (laughs) These are like 90, 95-minute movies, and then you throw this two-hour slog
1: at me, Ross. You can blame Ron Howard, all right? Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, what are you torturing me with next week? Where are we headed after this?
1: Next week, trip, we are taking a ride with the out-of-towners, which is available as of the time of this recording, as we always now have to say this because streaming is a lovely place and things come and go as they please. But right now, you can watch it on Paramount+, Plus, on Hoopla, or on Pluto TV, or you can rent it on Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube, or uh, you can find it maybe at your local library. We here at A Trip Through Comedy support physical media and local libraries.
0: Yes, of course.
1: Uh, So Tripp, what do you remember about the out-of-towners, or did you see this, anything that comes to mind?
0: Okay, so I have not seen this, but this movie plays a very special place in my heart, Ross Bratton, and that is A... I have seen several times the original 1970 Neil Simon written uh, The Out-of-Towners that this is a remake of. So I know the general premise of the movie. A uh, couple come in. This is Steve Martin, Goldie Hawn, I think. Uh, they come into New York. He has a job interview, and it's like a one horrible night. But this is the first movie I ever witnessed uh, the shooting of a movie. Uh, I was uh, spring of 1998 on our choir tour through Boston and New York. Uh, We watched them for about two hours, set up a scene in Central Park. Uh, Did not get to see either star, but they were working with, I'm assuming, Steve Martin's stunt double or stand-in or someone. So I know there is a moment where Steve Martin falls down in Central Park. That's what I remember uh, about this, this movie that we saw from Sitting on a Hill in Central Park. So,
1: Well, look, we'll see if that's maybe the happiest moment that you had remembering this movie, <laughs> or if, you, if it's a pleasant surprise for you. We'll find out next week.
0: Yes. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we should mention we're recording this just after our first uh, episode dropped, and I've been hearing lots of Thoughts about my four-star review of Office Space (laughs) from people on uh, Twitter or X or whatever we are calling it. Uh, I'm at TripBurton13. Uh, I'm also on Letterboxd as Trip Burton.
1: You can find me at R. Bratton on X Twitter or uh, on Letterboxd as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, or you can find the show uh, at a T T C pod on both Twitter and Instagram. We love hearing from you there. Or if you want to send us your longer thoughts uh, on an email, uh, that is a trip through comedy at gmail.com. Remember trip has two P's.
1: And again, thank you to everyone who's listening. As trip said, this is our first recording since the actual launch of this show. And, uh, we've been hearing a lot of very nice and kind things and it's greatly appreciated by both of us. Uh, Our
0: theme music is also So Alive, the instrumental version by John Worthy Music. Uh, You can find his work online.
1: And as always, we'll see you further along down the road.
0: A joyous celebration of boobery.
1: That's all this is.